You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I know I've used the Johnny Cash version before, but if you're going to play a cover version, you can't get much better than this one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Ingle, and I love talking about Greenlander comics, specifically the ones starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, and the ones that have the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner in it. And I'm especially pleased today because Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner are in the comics. Specifically, Greenlander number 135, which is the fourth part of the Wild Rome Burns story, which has Kyle taking on a menace of Alex Nero, a yellow ring-wielding baddie who's deciding to, well, unleash psychotic Lovecraftian horrors all amongst New York City citizens. Plus, it also stars Guy Gardner, which makes it awesome in my book. Plus, we're also going to be taking a look at the next part in the Circle of Fire storyline, a story that deals with Green Lantern, a repurposed Manhunter robot, and Firestorm. And if you know anyone who loves Firestorm more than the person I've penned to come on the show with me, then you're out of your mind, because no one loves Firestorm more than this guy. Ladies and gentlemen, I am happy to welcome for the first time on the show, the Iridema One Shag. Hey, man. Hey, man. Well, I have to say, like... If I gotta talk about Firestorm, I guess that's okay, but I don't appreciate the bait and switch. Just so you folks at home know, what happened was Sean actually invited me to be on the Tangent Podcast, <laughs> and I thought we were going to be talking about some of the Wave 2 Tangent books, and moments ago when he started the introduction, I figured out, oh no, this is a complete bait and switch. He got me on here to talk about Green Lantern and Firestorm. Yeah, well, unfortunately, Michael Bradley isn't up this late, so sorry. <laughs> I'm just saying that we're going to have words after this is over, sir. Uh, that's the, I'm, I'm already used to it. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am a huge, huge, huge Kyle Rayner fan. Uh, I don't know if you and I have ever actually had any conversations about this or not. No, uh, go ahead and fill me in on that. I didn't know. I knew you were obviously a big fan of Firestorm. What, what's your deal with Kyle Rayner? Well, I, um, I first started... Like, I mean, I've obviously been aware of Green Lantern since the days of the Super Friends. I always mm-hmm. loved I always had that deep, gravelly voice on the show, whatever. But, like, when I finally engaged on Green Lantern and started buying it on a monthly basis was Emerald Dawn, when the first Emerald Dawn miniseries came out. And for anybody that says all those reboots in the 80s didn't work, well, this one did. It got me sucked in. I started reading Green Lantern from that point. And... Like the rest of the world, I got pretty bored with that series somewhere probably around the 40s, issue 40s. Yeah. So it really sucked. That's kind of when I stopped Yo know, having any real direction. Gerard Jones, I think, was just kind of sick of doing the book at the time. Yeah, it was not entertaining. So I was like within an inch of, of dropping it until I heard about this Emerald Dawn story, or Emerald Twilight coming up. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, all right, well, I'll hang around. So I read Emerald Twilight, read um, Emerald's. It's not called Emerald Dawn again, is it? What is it when Kyle joins? Emerald Twilight. Uh, that was that was what it was. It was Emerald Twilight. Was the four or the three issues yeah. leading to fifty? It was forty-eight, forty-nine, and fifty. Okay. Fifty-one. They had uh, what was the one with Guy Gardner? It was Emerald. Emerald Fallout. 
It was Emerald Fallout. Starring Guy Gardner. I mean. It's not like you do a podcast celebrating this character or anything. Crap, I should know this. It was something, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he had, he was in the red suit and got the shaz beat out of him and yep. everything. Yeah. Um, either way, I was just like, the minute they introduced Kyle, I was like, wow, this is cool. I got so excited. And I fell in love with Kyle immediately. I love this character. In fact, I'll tell you what. I have um, I have like certain favorite characters. I mean, I think everyone, all nerds do. And I, being on enough podcasts, I've had the opportunity to quantify this enough times. So I have four favorite heroes that I'll follow through any incarnation. I'll always follow Firestorm. I'll always follow Aquaman. I'll always follow Blue Devil. I'll always follow Dr. Fate. But I have three specific characters that I love so much that are like some of my fi- Like, I will seek out their comics anytime I can. And that's Wally West, Tim Drake, and Kyle Rayner. Oh, nice. Yep. Now, um, so I collected from, started with Emerald Dawn, you know, obviously then was there for Emerald Twilight when Kyle came on board, stayed all the way, you know, the the only time I, I considered stopping was during, oh, sorry, but the Ben Rab years uh, was a little weak for me. <clears throat> Tom Tom DJ has, has thoroughly warned me about how Ben Rabe or Ben Rab is going to take take Green Lantern down a, a place that I'm not going to enjoy. So. I mean, it wasn't terrible for me. And, and honestly, I'd have to reread it because it's been since, you know, I read them when they came out and never again. But it, I wasn't thrilled at that point. And then, and then Rebirth happened. Mm-hmm. And my heart died a little, you know, broke a little bit there. And I stuck with it, though. I still read those early issues of Kyle, or Hal, even though they were boring as sin. But I enjoyed seeing what happened with Kyle in those issues and seeing him, you know, kind of get involved with Sinestro's daughter and all that stuff. And, um, spoiler, I suppose. But somewhere around Blackest Night, I kind of finally had enough. It just, it was too much. And that Emerald Night series started, and it was a dollar more than everything else. And I was just like, you know what? I'm out. So I think it's fair to say I collected uh, Kyle from his first appearance all the way up to 2010. And I have an incredible passion for him. I, in fact, I, I I don't know if you've ever sought out Kyle action figures. I've they, seen a couple of them, especially the Total Justice one. That's the, the, <laughs> but that's where he's a bit a bit beefy. A bit? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, they're all a bit beefy <laughs> in that series. Um, but there was one that came up from DC Direct that is just this gorgeous Kyle figure. It's like, I remember when it came out, it's, I, I did a post on a blog I was doing at the time that said, hey, they finally produced a Kyle figure that doesn't suck. <laughs> and uh, he looks great. It's the classic, as they call crab face co- uh, mask, I guess is what they call it's, it. It's not the redesign, the sort of Jim Lee redesign. Correct. It's did. not the redesign with the zippers and the dog collar. Uh, uh, no, it's it's pure Kyle, man. Just like it is what we're going to be reading here today. I love that costume. Awesome. So, love the character. So excited. So when you asked me to be on the show, I mean, I, I would absolutely jumped on it. And I'm a big Guy Gardner fan, too, by the way. The Bo Smith stuff is just Oh yeah, well, and as you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Bo Smith. I think that really he he basically developed Guy Gardner into a character that is far more likable than any other writer has developed. Into. So, oh yeah. So I, I'm glad to have you on, and I'm glad that we're going to be able to talk about both these books today. But uh, if you're ready, we're going to go ahead and jump into a couple of uh, promos here. We'll take a little break, and when we get back, we'll go ahead and uh, start up with uh, Green Lantern number 135. Let's get this show on the road, gang. These freaks, 
are dedicated, hardworking people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of thought. This looks like a job for Superman. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. Calabac, Desad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Ditchwick, and Arisia and Woody Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Who's who? The definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. All right. And we are back. So let's go ahead and we'll start with Green Lantern number 135. Ready? For well, that? hold on. Oh. Before we get oh. going. Okay. Um, because I'm a bit of an idiot. So I, I got all starry-eyed and fanboy a minute ago when I was telling you like how much I love Kyle Rayner. I, like, oh, I love Kyle Rayner so much. I've been reading it for so long. Oh, I never actually awesome. said why I like the character. I realized it kind of in hindsight during the break. Okay. So very briefly, uh, I loved Kyle's youthful optimism. It was always so upbeat. I mean, the, the, the cards always were stacked against him in the beginning. He was always, you know, like one foot or one step away from getting like the total shaz beat out of him or everything going wrong or everything falling down because because he wasn't Hal. You know, mm-hmm. he wasn't Hal, by God, and everything sucked because he, he wasn't Hal, and everyone was sure to remind him of that, including the fans. And so I Especially enjoyed... Yeah, I enjoyed the fact that he was willing to, he kept pushing through and he kept pushing through. And of course, I love the artistic side and the cool, you know, constructs. Everybody loves that. But he just represented... A symbol of hope for all the kids coming up because I was, you know, when he first came out in what, what, 92? Uh, yeah, like well, 92, 93, I think. Yeah. So was I was, zero hour, yeah. I was about 20 years old, you know, and I was like making my way in the world. I was, you know, I wanted to be ready to be an adult and I felt like Kyle was in that same sort of position where he was the kid who was trying to play with the grown ups. Um, I mean, I remember there was an issue of JLA where he's with talking to i think it was ray palmer i think and ray palmer even goes hey i hear they're finally stopped calling you the new green lantern you know rather than just green you called him started calling green lantern rather than the new green lantern mm-hmm. um and it just i, I think I, that's where where i like kyle is i just like him being young i like him fighting against the odds and i like it that he was the guy the underdog 
So. Yeah. Well, and that's it. You know, I also I kind of feel bad that at the time I didn't cover in tandem the JLA issues because I know not only did Ron Mars do a great job of of creating this character and building him up from this sort of young, brash, you know, not knowing what to do with the power character to uh, an incredibly competent and well-rounded superhero. The other person who did that was Grant Morrison in, in the JLA books. I mean, he really uh, enhanced the character of Kyle and putting him in with with essentially the rest of the Magnificent Seven. You know, you've got Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, The Flash, Martian Manhunter. The, the characters have been doing this for a long time and he has to step up and work with them is just is just really incredible and he's had uh over the course of this series of books some really amazing things that i think even surpass a lot of the heroic things that hal jordan and the rest of the green lantern corps prior to this have done so i i specifically point to like some of the stuff in uh again with grant morrison and dc one million uh kyle having to take on solaris and you know use a ring construct to keep him from going a supernova that's just uh, – just think about that. You're, you're stopping a sun from exploding by using your willpower. That, that to me was was kind of – that's an epic superheroic feat. And that they allowed Kyle Rayner to pull that off rather than Hal Jordan just basically cements the fact that Kyle Rayner is that impressive of a character. Yeah. But so. yeah, I could, I could sit here and gush for – gush about Kyle Rayner all day, but we've got a couple of issues. To yeah, let's do the comics. We're going to go ahead and do the comics. We're going to start off here with Green Lantern 135. Now, this one was cover dated April 2001 and released on February 7, 2001. This information, of course, comes from Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics over at DCIndexes.com. Go check it out. Cover price was $225 US and $375 Canada, and the title was While Rome Burned Part 4, Hiding in Plain Sight. The writer was Judd Winnick, the penciler was Daryl Banks, inker was Rich Faber, the colorist was William Moose Bowman, letterer was Chris Eliopoulos, the associate editor was Michael Wright, and the editor was Bob Schreck. Leading off from last issue's statement of the possibility of having to take Alex Nero's life, Superman asks Green Lantern Kyle Rayner if that's really necessary. Wonder Woman sides with the Man of Steel, saying it's a bit premature to issue a death sentence for Nero, but Kyle says that they should just be prepared for the worst. Of course, Batman chimes in about being prepared, because give him enough preparation and he can take on the entirety of Apocalypse and Darkseid himself. But he wonders exactly what Kyle, what Kyle is getting at. Telling the League that Nero is an amoral nutjob with a power ring capable of splitting atoms, Kyle restates the need to take him out with whatever they can muster. And with that, the League split off into groups to stop the attacks perpetrated by the Yellow Construct demons. Aquaman and Plastic Man take on a sea serpent, Wonder Woman and Flash tackle some centaurs and hentai beasts. Bat <laughs> Seriously, attention's all over. Batman blows up some minotaurs menacing a grade school. Guy and Superman knock around some bat demons. And GL and Martian Manhunter blast some unearthly insect-slash-human hybrids. But eventually, the smaller skirmishes stop, allowing John to mentally scan for the presence of Nero. Fortunately, Nero has finally revealed himself. Unfortunately... It's in the middle of Times Square, the most populated part of New York City. And there we go. So what do you have on uh, 
notes for this, Shag? Well, this inter- this issue. Now, keep in mind, I'm 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 doing this in sort of a vacuum. Like, I haven't read the issues prior to this, and I haven't read the issues after this in a long, long, long time. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting to just read this issue as a microcosm. I will tell you, I had a blast reading it. I love the art. I like a lot of the character moments. However, with that said, reading this issue on its own, it's a bit disappointing. I, I can kind of agree with that, yeah. It feels like a filler. It starts and ends basically in the same place. You know, they're talking about, we're going to have to find uh, Nero, and it ends with, oh, finally Nero reveals himself. It's almost like that could have happened in one panel. Um, and, there, it, you know, when, when you have an issue where it could have just taken out of the story and wouldn't have really impacted anything, you got to ask, well, did you miss any big chunks of exposition? Was there a big thing explaining Nero's past and why he got this way? No. You know, the only thing you really got out of it was Kyle saying how dangerous Nero could be. And you don't even really need that. You kind of already know that because, you know, you understand as a reader what the, what the ring could do. And also it is, you know, they've got a big splash on the front. You know, the JLA guest stars in this issue. Well, back in 2001, that was a big, that's a big selling point because the JLA was massive at this point. It was a huge sales driver. So, again, I feel like it was sort of a waiting for the trade issue. I mean, this 2001 is really kind of when waiting for the trade was really in play mm-hmm. as well. I mean, this is part four. Oh, my yes. gosh. Four? Really? And they still haven't had the confrontation with Nero? So, putting that behind me, the, man, the art in this is so gorgeous. I had forgotten how far Daryl Banks had come as an artist. Oh, yes. And, his, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, I, I definitely felt the – the waiting for the trade aspect definitely taking into this book. So far, there's been a lot of talky, talky, talk and not much going on. We finally get a little action here, but it's not it, – it does have that sort of decompressed feel. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I was kind of afraid not having read much uh, you know, in the late in – in the 2000s with really any comic – whether the decompressed storyline was kind of showing up here. And I'm glad that, you know, we kind of agree that this is sort of an aspect of it. But yeah, Daryl Banks's art really looks good in here. He draws the JLA wonderfully. His line work, and I don't know whether it's the inker, Rich Faber, or the the the, art, the colorist, Moose, who's got what's, what's driving this book to look so different than, you know, X number of issues ago when Daryl started drawing the book. I don't. It's been a while he's been drawing it, right, at this point? Oh, yeah. Pretty, he's pretty much drawn it all the way through. That's There's been some issues. Uh, actually, uh, I want to say Paul Pelletier, who's yeah. drawing the Aquaman books right now, had a little stint in there drawing the Green Lantern books. And he you know, he was really good doing that as well. But, uh, yeah, it's been pretty much Daryl Banks all the way through. A lot of times I've been kind of disappointed with Banks, and particularly – and this is really odd – when Terry Austin was inking him, a lot of times when uh, I think Banks and Austin just weren't really a good mesh because a lot of times the artwork when it was Terry Banks and or Terry Austin and Daryl Banks working together, the art didn't look quite as good. So I think Rich Faber may be doing a a, a good service to uh, Daryl Banks's art in here. Yeah, and Moose's colors just I mean because a lot of it looks painted, genuinely painted, and it's mm-hmm. just absolutely beautiful so so striking so loving that um and then the the character of nero i always liked i always thought nero was a very interesting character at the time i remember feeling that nero and effigy were a little too similar they mm-hmm. both were con you know construct uh, people and both were actually even kind of yellowish i mean in, in that both were designed to be the new green lantern threat 
So I, I felt like there was a little bit of a similarity there back then. Now reading this, I don't really necessarily feel that. Nero has a much more interesting angle with the insanity. So um, very cool stuff. Very, very cool stuff. Yeah, the, the thing that I like is the fact that we're getting back to sort of the classic villains of uh, Green Lantern and, and introducing or reintroducing the Quardians into the Green Lantern book. For the longest time in the Ron Mars run, it seemed to be sort of verboten to have really classic villains back. And it wasn't until recently that we saw in even you know sort of offshoot books like the 80-page giant, Green Lantern tackling characters like Hector Hammond or anything like that. And he's been sort of not really sidelined, but he's been paired up with sort of C-list villains. I mean, I don't know if you remember Hair Metal Sonar. Yeah, I do. Totally. He was really bad. Uh, the only real, the only real villain that sort of lasted through was the character of Fatality, who I think is still mm-hmm. along in the uh, Green Lantern books today as a Star Sapphire, and actually has, you know, I guess she's gotten over her uh, her uh, hatred of John Stewart for blowing up her planet. So yeah, there you go. I guess everyone can change. So there you right. go. Right. Well, eventually, uh, didn't they hook up at some point? But... I, I think they did. You're talking about different art styles, this is just a this is a fun little game for you to play. It could be a drinking game, but it could prove deadly quickly. <laughs> uh, we used to play a little game where we would go through Green Lantern covers, specifically Kyle Rayner covers, and count how many, or, or see how many in a row, had Kyle's mouth open in some shape or fashion. <laughs> either with his teeth gritted or in like an opening, sort of yelling, like, ah, kind of look. And I'm telling you, if you take a shot for every time, you won't last that long. Yeah, that's true. Well, on, on on this cover, it looks like everyone except Superman's really grimacing. You've got Diana and Batman with his big screamy mouth as well. So, yep. <laughs> I, I do I do like on the cover, and I think this is uh, specific to Nero himself. He's wearing the ring on his left hand, which, if you know anything about Latin, there's a the the Latin word for left or the la- a Latin word describing left is sinister. So I thought that was kind of interesting that on his left hand. He wore the ring and he's sinister. However, you know, taking that to its logical conclusion, Sinestro, which you should have realized as a Green Lantern, would probably be a bad guy. Hello, it's in his name. <laughs> uh, his, he wore his ring on his right hand. So I guess they uh, that that whole idea doesn't hold through. That's a missed opportunity there. But look at you dropping the knowledge. Well, wow. Uh, I have plenty of time to research this stuff. So it's, a, <laughs> it's a sad, sad life that I lead. Um. I'm glad that in the book that even though he's not really a major portion of it, Guy Gardner's in there. And again, I know Guy Gardner kind of gets a lot of flack for the warrior stage of his life, but I love, love it. I think it's kind of fun. I, I'm glad that the, I'm glad that they finally brought him into this book uh, because the last time they had a big dust up in New York City uh, that I recall was the Day of Judgment storyline, and that one was a huge attack. It was like the the beast from hell coming to New York city and Guy Gardner was nowhere to be seen. So I'm glad that they decided that Judd Winnick at least is including him here in this little, this little skirmish going on in the city. Yeah. Got a question on that too. Cause I was wondering about Guy being there because you know, obviously I didn't read the issue before or recently did Guy show up with the JLA or is he just there caught up with Kyle? No, in the, uh, in the last issue, there's a two page splash at the end when, where Kyle's basically, it basically just leads right into this next, uh, to the beginning of this issue where it's the assembled members of the JLA along with uh, Guy Gardner there and Kyle saying we may have to kill him. So okay. 
it's I don't know whether the JLA just called in guy as a sort of reserve or he was just there because he's the denizen of New York City. But I'm glad to see him in the book. I, oh, yeah. I think it's it's unfortunate, especially since his home base or his base of operation is New York City, that he's not used when threats happen in New York City. And by the way, for but, those of you listening at home going, why is Shag asking all these stupid questions? Why didn't he just listen to the episode before this? Because we're recording a little bit ahead. And the most in the episode before this hasn't been posted yet. So in my defense, well, no, no problem because yeah, um, I I will go ahead and peel back the curtain. I do record these a couple of weeks in advance. In fact, I'm trying to get a sort of surplus because I've got a few things coming up in the pipe with other shows that I have to do. So so I'm trying to get this done. And plus, also Shag is very very busy, and I really appreciate him being able to come on the show. We're kind of recording this at an odd hours, so we're uh, again, it's great to have Shag on the show. Yeah, Sean. I'm a busy man. I'm too busy for your little show. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Um, one of the things that I was confused at, uh, now the Circle of Fire storyline happened a little bit before this. And in mm-hmm. the Circle of Fire storyline, I'm looking here on page nine where Plastic Man and Aquaman are taking on this uh, ring construct sea serpent. <laughs> sorry, I love that part where Aquaman's like, why do I keep getting teamed with you? <laughs> Plastic Man it's like Loch Ness monster jokes. Poor, poor, <laughs> poor Aquaman gets teamed with the jokesters. That's he's always getting dumped with the just the he he can never get you know oh well, Superman I'll team up with you uh, that's okay that's okay Aquaman you can oh Plastic Man it's good I have but, to say I, I I'm really excited reading this because I haven't read something with you know hook handed Aquaman in a while and I love the Peter David era of Aquaman so this well, is this is pretty exciting. And this was one of the things uh, in the circle of the first Circle of Fire storyline. Uh, Aquaman was depicted without the harpoon on his hand. He actually had a hand. Now I don't know whether this was the point in time. He was still in the sort of armor, the shoulder armor with the shirtless, the very barbarian mm. type look. So I don't know if this was the point in time where he'd gained that mystical water hand yet, or whether that was just a mistake in the drawing in the Circle of Fire storyline. I'm on it. Give me a minute. I think I have a solution for this. Okay. Go ahead. Um, the next uh, the next comment I have is on uh, page 10. Oh, wait. No. Oh, hell no, it's not. We're going back to page 5, brother. Okay, go ahead and hit me with page 5. Um, page 5. That scene about where Kyle says, you know I can split the atom, right? Yes. That is an awesome page. Because just for you at home, there's basically like the, there's a moment of quiet where Kyle just stares down at his ring and it's just seeping energy. And that's when he's like, he's almost sort of like stealing himself for the next moment of what he's going to say. Mm-hmm. And that's when he says, do you know that I can split the atom with this? And they show every, all the, well, not they show several justice leaguers faces like Superman's horrified. Warner Woman's like, what the funk? Uh, Flash looks scared. Batman's like, you know, calculating and guy is smiling. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just, that's a, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, that's one of those things that uh, I think Guy knew that he could do that as well. And I think that's Guy realizing that, yeah, hey, Batman, you know, that whole one punch thing. Guess what I could have done to you if I really wanted to. So but I like the fact that, yes, Guy in this panel knows that this is the power that the Green Lanterns wield. And if they really wanted to do something as drastic as that, they could have. Yeah. And, and, and I like it is it is a great progression of panels here with Kyle realizing that he could do this kind of thing. And, and I think that's probably my favorite 
page of the whole book right there. It's just a great, great page. Mm-hmm. And and again, this is some really, really good artwork. And the, the coloring, especially looking at that first panel there with the energy coming off and that being sort of blending from the sort of light greens to the white, mm-hmm. it really gives a nice uh, feel of the energy of the ring. Yep. Um, so what page did you want to go to? I want to go to, where was it, page 10? Mm-hmm. That was uh, the page with with Wonder Woman and the Flash yeah, fighting is. together. Now, I, first of all, I love seeing the Flash doing the sort of Carmine Infantino sort of multiple uh, speed versions of him. That's always fun to see that. And and Wally just punching Minotaurs at super mm-hmm. speed. That's awesome. But looking at that top panel up there, those are centaurs, buddy. Oh, centaurs. Okay, yeah, the, yeah. Batman takes out the Minotaurs. My my bad. But um, that top panel up there, <laughs> do you think that Banks may have drawn Wonder Woman with high heels and Rich Faber just said, no, she's not wearing high heels, and he just kind of inked them out? So you get this sort of Wonder Woman standing on her tippy toes to wrap her magic lasso around these constructs? I'm sorry. I didn't notice her shoes because I was looking at her ass sticking out straight at us <laughs> and her boobs hanging down like enormously well, in a ridiculous cheesecake pose where you can't even see her face. People could write a psycho, like a psychology a thesis about comic books and the, the treatment of women on this panel alone. Well, yeah, <laughs> that is true. I, I, now, I don't know why I wasn't looking at her boobs and butt, but yeah, there you go. Because now that I see it now, that's all I can't stop looking at. Oh, okay. In all fairness, being the irredeemable shag, I do have to say, whew, she's hot. Yeah, well, the, Banks does a good job at, okay, for the most part, Banks does a good job at drawing women very attractive. I remember in Green Lantern, I think it, one of the early issues of Kyle's run, where uh, Alex, his, his oh, first okay. girlfriend, uh, came out of uh, the bedroom in a, a very slinky negligee and was enticing Kyle to come uh, come to bed with her. He draws very, very attractive women. But yeah, I, yeah, I just didn't notice that she's doing the uh, boobs and butt shot here, which is <laughs> ridiculous. So. I, I think, um, you know, I, I always loved Donna Troy with, under George Perez's pencils. Mm-hmm. But I think under these issues with Kyle is when I really fell in love with her. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's yeah. smoking hot. Donna Troy looks looks incredible. Oh, yeah. So there are some, some great images. Um, the next note I have is on page 12. No, page eleven. Go ahead, page eleven. The Minotaurs are threatening the children in the, in the school, and they write on the chalkboard essay one million words on the death of all that's holy. <laughs> the Minotaur took the time to write that on the chalkboard. So, so not only are the Minotaur is menacing and diabolical and wanting to kill them, but they're also wanting them to uh, to have proper English skills. So that's nice of them. Nero is bad. <laughs> crazy sorry i'm sorry for cursing <laughs> oh no that's fine um after that you know like i said you know batman now batman looks a little wonky on page 12 that panel where he's pointing it at the guys but the fact that he has bat grenades <laughs> it's got his logo on him too <laughs> you know where do you get those made and why you know and why if you were supposedly you know you know, opposed to I guess he's opposed to using guns, but blowing people up. Hey, that's fine. Hey, Bruce is all about the brand management. OK, well, know? that makes sense. then. He, he's not going to let what happened to aspirin, you know, because, you know, Bear aspirin, Bear used to own the name aspirin. And oh, yeah. Then it fell into public use. And so now aspirin, aspirin's a generic term. There's no way Bruce is going to let his products 
go into common usage. So he's got to make sure he manages that brand. Okay. He knows what he's doing. Well, you know, he's he's a clever businessman, so I'll give him that. Yep. Um, my next note's not until page 14. Okay. Okay. Like I said, it's nice to see Guy in his warrior role in the book. I'm, you know, I love Guy Gardner doing this, even as goofy 90s as it is of him being able to morph his body into weapons and shoot plasma out of them. So whatever. But again, I hearken back to the fact that I really would have loved to see him in in the Jeff Johns pen Day of Judgment. Jeff Johns, who says he has such respect for Guy Gardner, completely forgot that Guy Gardner was around when this diabolical demonic horde was supposed to be hitting up New York City in Day of Judgment. So mm. I'm glad to see him here. Well, I really wish they had found a way to make the warrior thing work. I, mean, I love that he's a Green Lantern, but at the same time, the, the to immediately undo everything and rebirth. You know, I'm sorry, I'm going down the wrong path. I'm, well, going, down, I'm going down a path of darkness. I, 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 think, I think you and I are kind of on the same page. You know, I, I enjoyed rebirth for what it is but i didn't really like them sort of having to promote hal as the the super green lantern again it diminished kyle and getting rid of guys boldarian powers just to making the green lantern again you know i, I like the cat you know I, I know a lot of people think the boldarian thing is silly but i liked it so that's as long as you handle it right and bo smith handled it right Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, I, I don't know if I said it on air, but your, your Bo Smith interview was awesome, by the well, way. Well, I, I appreciate it. And, uh, I, I can't take credit for that. I have to give all of that to Bo Smith. He is an incredible, <laughs> incredible talker, and he was just fun to listen to him talk about that. And did you hear, you know, again, since we're talking about, we might as well go off on a tangent on this. When he mentioned the fact that he was writing a story that was supposed to be Wonder Woman and a, <laughs> a Wonder Woman and Xena crossover. I about I about cracked myself. I, was, <laughs> I would pay money to have that done. And supposedly, I think he was going to have Eduardo Barreto uh, pencil it, and he had already had some sketches done of it. And I would have loved to have seen that. That would have been great. It would have absolutely been great. I guess they would have done that with Tops because Tops, I think, had the Xena license back then. Uh, they might have. I don't know if they were, it would have been a crossover, but you know, they said they had. They, you know, he had written it up, and you know principal art had been done but it just kind of got shelved which is disappointing um after after we get this initial thing and everyone's broken up it's just a bunch of fight 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 and it does like i said have that sort of decompressed feel where really not much is going on it's it's a lot of pretty panels and the characters fighting but yeah um i I got a question on page 19 um kyle talks about having lived through some hurricanes and like it started tickling something in my back of my mind. Do I rem- and, and it may not have even appeared in the book at this point yet, but do I remember that Kyle's mom lived in Florida? Is that right? Now, as far as I know, Kyle's mom has always lived in Los Angeles. That's where he's always gone to. You know, whenever he's gone out to uh-huh. see his mom, she's been in Los Angeles. Uh, they had uh, the first time he met with Effigy. Mm-hmm. It was uh, over the Hollywood sign. You know, he was burning up the Hollywood sign, and Kyle had to go deal with that. So. From my knowledge, Kyle was always a denizen of the West Coast, which is odd because they've made references to him, you know, uh, drowning in New York Harbor, almost drowning in uh, New York Harbor. You know, so I don't know. (laughs) They don't specifically have a I think Judd Winnick doesn't have a specific point of origin for Kyle's upbringing. But, you know, well, at one point they tried to 
they, they tried to play the ethnicity card and say that Kyle was Hispanic at one point. Hmm. And that really never took. See, because I always saw him as Irish. I, you know, that's, oh, that's me too. Kind of, that's kind of the way that, you know, his his mom was Mora. You know, I don't know what his what ethnicity his dad was, but I saw him more as an Irish character. But, uh, you know, and no no pun, you know, no irony in the fact that he's Green Lantern, but you know, whatever. I, but I, I never saw. <laughs> well, never thought about that. Think about that. The Irish. But yeah, there you go. I've already isolated all my Irish listeners. So sorry, Irish listeners. I apologize. For that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I never really saw any Hispanic or you know, any ethnicity like that in him, but you know, whatever, maybe that's something that they'll just retcon and say away. Um, well, it looks last? like, uh, I did a quick Google here. It does look like, uh, Winnick was the one who tried to make Kyle Latino at one hmm. point. And I think that may have been when his father entered the picture, not to give too many spoilers. But. Okay. Well, unfortunately, like I said, I haven't read that stuff, so I will it's be cool. getting that soon. I think it's great that you're reading it as a go. Well, and the, you know, that's how much I'm willing to invest in this character because I do love him so much. I'm willing to even to sit through the Judwinick stuff, which I've heard is awesome. And even through the Ben Rapp stuff, which I've heard isn't so awesome. Well, you know what, though? It's sort of different, though. Like, when you read certain comic books years later, and you know there's a... At the time we were living through the Ben Rapp stuff, it was like, oh my gosh, why can't we have a good comic? And, or whatever we were feeling at the time. Now you know it's a finite period of time. Mm-hmm. And you're going to go into it with a completely different feeling. And it, it's, I bet you it's going to be better than we all remember it, living it month to month. Well, and that's that's kind of what I what I think. I think taking this on a weekly basis, you know, it's it's allowing it it's allowing the stories not to feel as decompressed and sort of wait for the trade. You know, the stories don't feel as substantive that they had prior to this. But since I'm reading them week after week after week, it doesn't feel like I'm losing anything. So I think that's kind of one of the benefits of reading them, you know, these many years after they've come out. My last real comment in the book, I think, is uh, on page – I'm sorry, on page 20 where everyone's getting their own little battle scenes. That mm-hmm. uh, that fifth panel there where Superman's tossing that construct, I so wish he would have just tossed it a little higher and you know he had flung it into the sun <laughs> so I could make a comment about Superman throwing stuff into the sun. <laughs> so you figured out a way to make a comment about it even though he didn't do it. Yeah, well you – know, <laughs> It's it's my own little way to see if Scott Gardner will ever listen to this show, because Scott Gardner loves Green Lantern, loves him a lot. So you baited me a couple of weeks ago with a very similar comment about seeing if Shaggy listens to the show, and now I'm friggin' here. So <laughs> hey, that's, that's your plan, huh? Exactly. That's that's exactly how I'm going to get Scott Gardner on the show. Keep keep calling him out. Let's let's bait like Bruce Springsteen and see if you can get him on the show. That would be <laughs> that'd be worth it then. Uh... I'm, pro- I'm probably can get Bono. He'll sell out for anything. Freaking iTunes. Oh, damn. Uh, I was so, you know, I don't know if you have iTunes or an iPhone or anything, but I was like, I was looking at my iPhone. I was like, why the hell do I have a U2 album on here? <laughs> delete, Dude. delete, delete, delete. My wife, that's so funny you should mention that. This is so off the reservation, but whatever. My wife and I spent 20 minutes trying to figure that out tonight. <laughs> On our iPad, we're like, what the hell is this? Like, this is the crappiest iOS update ever. What she the heck was, is this? She was downloading some music for an event she's got to run next week. And she's mm-hmm. just like, what the hell? I didn't get this. And we're trying to figure it out and trying to get rid of it. And it's just funny. that I mean, I wish we had recorded this podcast first. Then I would know why the hell it was there. <laughs> <laughs> um, But, yeah, the 
the story is like I said, like I mentioned, like we both mentioned, this does kind of have that sort of wait for the trade type feel. It's not bad wait for the trade. It's not like uh, Brian Michael Bendis where you don't feel that you really got a complete story in reading the book, but it does really just it doesn't really progress anything other than just saying Nero is a bad guy and we're fighting him. Yep. There's a lot of pretty. I think I'm looking at the final splash page here, the two page splash. There's a lot of really creepy constructs and the idea that he's taking out people in downtown uh, or in uh, Times Square in New York City is a, a really nice hook to get you wanting to read the next issue. But, yeah, it does kind of feel not quite as substantive or substantive as uh, previous issues. Yeah, it does feel like you now no, waiting for the trade really. Around this period of time, I'll finish any one of these sentences any minute, I promise. <laughs> um, waiting for the trade really became a common practice at this point in 2001, but the the industry as a whole wasn't admitting it. It was probably around 2003 where the term waiting for the trade became a bad thing, you know, when people started calling each other out on it. So I think that's generally what we're seeing here. I think we're seeing a padded issue. However, like you said, I you know, I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was a fun read. It was enjoyable. I could read it by itself, which is always a joy with a comic that you can read by itself and understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it didn't progress the story. So, you know what? If I had to, you know, give it a thumbs up or thumbs down, I definitely give it a thumbs up because I enjoyed it. Um, but it's, you know, if you're if you're following the full the ongoing, you know, Green Lantern arc, you're probably like, yeah, it's okay. Mm, and that's kind of what I got out of it. It's, it's it's a decent story, but it just does feel like it's just another chapter in, you know, what's going to be the next trade paperback. And looking at, you know, at, you know, I checked Mike's Amazing World of Comics to get my information for, you know, cover dates and all this. A lot of these stories from this timeline have been trade paperbacked, and a lot of the stuff prior to this hasn't been, unless it's been a specific, like, six-issue story arc, like the Emerald Knight story arc or the initial uh, Emerald Twilight stuff. So this does kind of feel like it's getting near that time where waiting for the trade is starting to happen. Oh, yeah. They've figured out the formula by this point. Okay. So, yep. Well, if you don't have anything else, I'll go ahead and take a little break here. We'll plug a podcast promo in and uh, go ahead and come back and start in on Green Lantern Firestorm number one. You cool with that? Do it. All right. On the grounds of Supermates Estates. There stands an ancient crumbling abode. This structure is said to contain unimaginable horrors, certain to chill your blood. Dare you enter the House of Frankenstein? You're insane. Don't tell me of it. I don't want to hear. I've changed my mind. I won't do it. In September and October, join the Baron Franklin Stein and his bride. Woman. Prayer. Yes. I want prayer. For four bone-chilling episodes as they discuss some of your favorite classic horror films. I am Dracula, and I welcome you to my house. My name is Horace. And resurrect and dissect some of the greatest monsters in cinema history. There's an old poem. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night 
may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms. And the autumn moon is bright. But don't fear, comic fans. This house is full of dusty long boxes containing your favorite superheroes' encounters with the supernatural. Oh, vampires, Batman! We're surrounded! Your horror host will unravel a harrowing adventure each episode. Now, Superman, you will feel the bite of Dracula. This house of horrors can be found at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes by searching for Supermates. Go quickly. Go! Yes! Yes, I'm going! So, grab your crucifix and wolfsbane, light your candle, and explore the blood-soaked corridors of the House of Frankenstein. We'll be expecting you. Go now. And heaven help you. Meeting adjourned. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nom. Join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series, The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. Com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. All right, we are back. And before we cover Green Lantern Firestorm number one, Chad, I'd like to talk a little bit about Circle of Fire number one. Go ahead and hit us with that. Yeah, well, I just had a couple quick thoughts. I mean, first of all, Circle of Fire number one, Brian K. Vaughn and Norm Brayfogle. Holy crap. What a team. Especially, you know, in the in the late 90s or early 2000s, whenever this was. I mean, holy crap. What a great team at that time. Brayfogle is an amazing artist. I love him so much. Yes. And he did some uh, great pages with Ronnie and uh, Fire. Of course, obviously, I'm focused on Ronnie and Firestorm, but did some of my favorite pages with Firestorm in here. In fact, there's one panel of Firestorm where he's just facing off against Adam Strange that is so badass that just shows up all the time. People use that panel all the time for Firestorm dramatic moments. Mm. And it uh, just I, looks great. I know the one you're talking about. I, I know exactly the one you're talking about. And yes, that is an awesome, awesome image. And to answer your question earlier about Aquaman, Aquaman showing up with a hand in there, if you go back, two hands I should say, yes. if you go back and look closely, you'll notice one of his hands is metal. Yes. 
Yes. And, and that's because at this time, and this relates to your Green Lantern issue too, Aquaman had this metal hand that was sort of like a Mighty Morphin Power Ranger kind of thing. It, it, it could it could transmute. It could be a hand. It could be a hook. It could be a bottle opener. It could be whatever he wanted to do. It could change shape. So it was it, it was different than the the sort of mystical water hand thing. Correct. It, okay. So it started off with just initially he just took a harpoon and shoved it into the meaty stump of his arm. <laughs> then within a couple of issues he had the fancy hook that could shoot off with like a cable. And then after a little while, he got a fancy transmogrifying hand, which is what he's got here, which is where it could be a hand or be a, a harpoon or whatever. Um, he would te- typically transform it to the harpoon for combat. And then after that came the, um, the water hand. So, so this is the period where he's got the transmogrifying hand. Okay, that makes sense because, you know, comics. That yep, works. There you go. I think you can thank uh, Eric Larson for it. But anyway. Oh, well, that's always awesome. So there's some other great stuff in number one that to this day it just gets me jazzed when Ronnie is working with Ray Palmer. And Ray Palmer is Ronnie's chemistry teacher, basically, try, or tutor at least, trying to help Ronnie get you know, up to speed on chemistry stuff since he doesn't have Professor Stein around anymore. Now, we'll, we'll get into the Professor Stein because I'll have some questions for you after we cover the book about you know what sure went thing. on between Ronnie and Professor Stein. So I'd love Absolutely. to hear you cover that. But at this point in time, Ronnie is Firestorm by himself. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted uh, a storyline where Ray Palmer entered the Firestorm Matrix and Firestorm became Ronnie and Ray. Ooh. Because, uh, you know, it, it follows that same formula of brash kid and brilliant scientist. You know, Ray fills that role. Ray also has, you know, superhero experience. And he could also, you know, maybe there's even a melding of the powers. Maybe you have a whole series of fire, adventures where Firestorm can shrink too. You know, whatever. But I just always thought that would be so much fun to have Ray Palmer as the new part of the Firestorm Matrix. And I was, I thought, I was sure it was going to happen. Because, you know, you saw the indications of him teaching him here. You saw a few other things, and I think it was called DC Universe Secret Files 2000 or something like that. You saw more of Ray Palmer teaching Ronnie, and I was just so sure they were going to become a duo, and it never happened, and I was so bummed. Now, at the time, you know, Firestorm, did he have any issues? Was he appearing regularly in comics at the time? No. In fact, we were Firestorm starved at this point. Hmm. After Extreme Justice, which is where Ronnie started being on his own in 1996, after that closed up, that was it. The only time Firestorm would show up would be like in the background uh, panels of the major crossovers and all colored in one color. You know, like where you got like five guys in the back and they're all blue. Yeah, you know, I remember the, those yeah, kind of things. Yeah, I remember specifically, again, harkening back to Day of Judgment. He was one of the uh, characters that went down with uh, the team of Superman and Green Lantern. And he went to, to try and reignite the fires of hell in that storyline. So, yeah, and at the time he had some problems because the, he, he actually had the Adam coming with him as sort of a sort of a Jiminy Cricket type character trying to tell him you know, what to do in order to uh, rekindle the fires of hell. So. <sighs> Dude, it would have been so great if they were merged. It would have been, instead of being Firestorm the, the Nuclear Man, it would have been Firestorm the Atomic Man. Mm-hmm. And you could have pronounced it easier, so that would have it, been. Yes, it would have been a lot nicer, because <laughs> <laughs> I cannot say the word nuclear. Nu- <laughs> nuclear. That's Anyway, um, but it would have been great. It would have been so awesome, because again, they could have adventures where Ray's doing his own thing as the Atom. Then they merge, and maybe Firestorm could shrink and go fight, I don't know, miniature dinosaur or something cool, whatever. But... <laughs> I love Ray Palmer's bat crazy adventures. Anyway, so it was just really nice in this particular issue, Circle of Fire Number One, to see them together, and uh, really was you know I felt like something was going to come of that, and it didn't, but that's okay. Well, 
you know, that now that you mention it, that is a really clever combination. And, you know, with, with the fact that uh, Professor Stein is no longer part of the Firestorm Matrix, you know, Professor Palmer makes a gr- would make a great, you know, counterpoint or make a great uh, assistant or whatever, you know, second character for the Firestorm Matrix. So, yeah, I, I think that would have been that would have been one of those concepts that I think was just smart enough for DC not to do anything with it, sadly. Aww. The names would have even worked. Because, you know, Ronnie Raymond is his last name, and Ray Palmer, I assume Ray's first name is actually Raymond, probably, right? Probably. So it would have been like Ronnie Raymond Palmer, you know, it just writes itself! (laughs) Oh, well. Uh, I'm certain there's there's plenty of fanfic that you could go out and make for the shag, so. You know, Thomas DJ wrote some Firestorm fanfic. Get on that. Oh, well, I'll have to ask him about that next time. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit more about Firestorm and the issue that we're covering right now, which is Green Lantern and Firestorm number one, which I don't know why they call it number one. It should be number only because there's not a number two. But number one sold. This is, this is the 90s. Oh, the yes, I, I do but remember that. something that sells better. There you go. The cover date was October 2000, and the release date was August 23rd of 2000. The cover price was 250 US and a whopping 395 in Canada. The title was Missing Pieces. Writer was Jay Fairber. The penciler was Ron Randall. Inker was Dan Davis. The letterer was Sean Conant. Colorist Tom McCraw. Separations were by Digital Chameleon. Assistant editor was Frank Berrios. The editor was Matt Eilson. And the cover was by Kerry Nord and Mark Lipka. And the story goes thusly. Flying through the vastness of space, a young Ronnie Raymond, the hero of Firestorm, relates his origin to the repurposed manhunter robot GL7177.6, telling the ring-wielding robot that he's just trying to break the monotony. Ronnie turns his attention to a planet that he has a quote-unquote gut feeling about the Omega option being on it. The duo land in the midst of the city that's been devastated, and Ronnie supposes that Oblivion might have caused all of this. GL points out the improbability of that statement, but is forced to shelve that debate as the heroes are fired upon by an incoming starship. Firestorm flies off to take out the craft, but without Professor Stein to guide him, he only manages to clean the cannons with scrubbing bubbles. Reaching the floating flame head, GL suggests that he transform the cannons into lead after giving him the necessary chemical knowledge. The attack is successful, but before Ronnie can do an end zone dance, the two are beamed inside the ship and held at gunpoint by a squadron of purple aliens on board. The aliens bring Ronnie and GL to their amply chested captain, who says that they will give them the Omega option if they defeat the fire god who is wrecking up their planet. Ronnie is none too happy with the quid pro quo deal, but as he doesn't have much time, he takes GL and heads out into space once again. Outside of the planet's atmosphere, Ronnie confronts GL about the wild goose chase that they're on, saying that they probably aren't looking for a god, but a powerful being of some sort. And where do you think a powerful fire being would be residing? Why yes, on this system's sun. And, just like clockwork, immense solar flares burst from the sun's surface heading straight towards the alien planet. Knowing that they have to save the aliens, GL has Ronnie head back to the surface to disrupt the flames while he looks for the source of them. Speeding back to the planet, Firestorm creates a giant fan, okay, to snuff out the flares. Yeah, he does. Of course he does, because it's Ronnie. Comics. Crisis averted, Ronnie turns to see GL smash into the ground, having just been thrown there by Effigy, the Green Lantern villain slash Firestorm wannabe. What? What? Oh, wait, that's not Effigy? No! That's Professor Stein? 
Yes, the elemental firestorm. Okay, because it sure looks like FGM. But he was first. Okay, well, whatever. <laughs> Anyhow, the professor seems to be having a Linda Blair moment, so in order to snap him out of it, GL attacks Firestorm, causing the professor to have some human emotions and snap out of his fugue state. Snap out of his fugue state. I can pronounce those things. Crisis averted again. The professor promises to stay and help repair the damage he caused, while the aliens tell Firestorm and GL that they never had the Omega option in the first place. Nice. But instead of last page being Ronnie and GL flying away from the smoldering husk of the lying planet of dickweeds, we're treated to a moment of tenderness between Ronnie and the Professor, as well as a call to rendezvous with the wrestling lanterns on the remnants of Oa, where Oblivion is making his final stand. All right, there we go. Another chapter in the Green Lantern Circle of Fire story. Um, since I haven't really read all that much Firestorm, and a lot of my knowledge comes from listening to an excellent podcast. What's it called? Oh, the Fire and Water podcast. Um, I was kind of confused about what was going on with Firestorm at this time. Do you want to kind of fill me in on this, Shag? Sure. Uh, I'll give you the backstory on Firestorm first, and then we'll talk about the the, the issue itself. Ruby. Uh, Firestorm was the, was the merger of Ronnie Raymond and Professor Stein for a number of years that was the original you know origin of the character and that's the way it went for a long time then very uh, in 1987 about 10 years after his creation they started fiddling around with the character and changing the matrix makeup of who created who who was inside the firestorm fire matrix and that began what still continues to this day to be continuous meddling with the firestorm character um it, it, it you can't go more than a couple years without them changing the composition of the character nowadays all started then. So in 1989, I think it was, I might be getting my date wrong, maybe 88, Firestorm became an elemental. Basically um, found out, just like Swamp Thing is, you know, the Earth elemental, Firestorm became the fire elemental for the planet Earth. Okay. Supposedly it was always intended to be, but nothing, but it didn't come out right. I'm not getting into the details of it. I'm not even doing it justice at this point because I actually really like this elemental period of Firestorm. It was really good. It was written by John Ostringer and drawn by Tom Mandrake. Oh, nice. O- only lasted about 15 issues, but damn, it was good. It was almost a, almost a mature reader's book, really. It was really made you think. Anyway, so for these 15 issues, Firestorm was a fire god, essentially. And he was constantly trying to decide whether he needed to cleanse the earth with fire. At the end of it, uh, and during this period, by the way, Ronnie was completely gone. It wasn't one of these situations where he would transform back and forth between a hero. They just, Ronnie was just gone. He was the fire god, period. End of story. Anyway, at the end of the story of that, uh, Ronnie is released from the elemental. Professor Stein becomes the fire elemental and has to go into space and is forced to stay in space at the end of this. And that happened in Firestorm number 100, the final issue of the series. So in 1990, uh, as the series closes, Professor Stein is the elemental firestorm and he's in space. Ronnie is powerless and on Earth. Six years later, in Extreme Justice, Ronnie starts to develop powers again. He becomes Firestorm, the traditional sort of Firestorm, but on his own without Professor Stein's guidance. So he's completely on his own as Firestorm. And very similar to this story, Professor Stein came to Earth to visit Ronnie, but had been taken over by the the elemental power and had sort of lost sight of, of everything and was acting like a fire god again, just like in this issue. 
So they they dealt with. So basically, this issue is a retread of a previous story, by the way. Okay. So you get that uh, fire god thing, and and at the end of that, Ronnie continues to be Firestorm, and Professor Stein goes back out into space. So that sort of fills you in on why there's two Firestorms at this point. One's Professor Stein as the elemental. One is Ronnie as the superhero. Okay. Well, that that makes sense. I'm glad you you know kind of filled me in. I I I'd known about the the sort of uh, dual nature of Firestorm from the beginning of when Jerry Conway was writing him, and I just didn't know when when I saw Firestorm. I read him the Circle of Fire storyline. I was like, why is it just Ronnie? Where's Professor Stein? I mean, mm-hmm. I always expect this. So now I appreciate you explaining that to me. That 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 helps a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoyed this book. I I like Jay Fairber. I don't really have that much uh, that much history with him, except for what I've read in the Green Lantern books. Between the Ron Mars run and the Judd Winnick run, there was about four or five issues in there where Jay Fairber wrote the book, and he's got a style that's a nice transition between the sort of styles of Mars and uh, uh, Judd Winnick. Uh, he he writes in kind of the way that I would say, oh, who's it? Who did the third Iron Man movie? Um, the director or the writer? Yeah, the director. Uh, Shane Black. Mm-hmm. He's got a sort of Shane Black sort of action feel, and he does really sort of interesting buddy cop action feel storylines. And I liked, uh, you know, not only how he did that in the Green Lantern books, but he kind of did it here. Um, it's not really all that deep as the other stories done by Brian K. Vaughn, but. I think it's enjoyable enough. So, in fact, uh, out of the two stories that we had on the show today, I think this one is actually a bit more enjoyable than the uh, Green Lantern one, simply because, yeah, again, the Green Lantern one sort of felt that had that decompressed feel where not much went on in it. What are wow. your thoughts? I hate this comic. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, it really gets under my skin, unfortunately. Okay. Um, Obviously, I'm biased because I'm a Firestorm fan. Yes. Uh, I was really excited that Firestorm was going to sort of headlining a one-shot. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe it. And Jay Farber, um, I, I can't remember if he had been writing Noble Causes and Dynamo 5 at that time or not. Um, maybe Noble Causes. I can't remember. Either way, I knew I recognized him as a, a writer I liked at that time. But this story was just such a letdown for me. Again, it's the whole plot of Professor Stein being a fire elemental who's out of control, lost touch with his humanity had just been covered four years previously in Extreme Justice. And not that anyone read Extreme Justice, mind <laughs> you, but still, it's, you know, this ground was, was has been, they've, they've crossed this ground and salted the earth behind them already that, with that storyline. So it's like, this is just a redo of it. So do you think the, the fact that you had read that story prior to this, you know, kind of tainted the way you felt about this story? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Also, like, there's other things too, though. Like, Ronnie's extremely hot-headed in this. Like ridiculously hot-headed, like he's constantly using exclamation points, constantly flying off at the handle of the smallest things, and it's just it, it's hard to to buy into. The thing that really set me off, though, that just made this issue impossible for me to swallow, is right early on, is when Ronnie goes, you know, they're flying through space looking for what Oblivion's, um, yeah, the Omega option, which right. is the thing that supposedly Kyle invented to defeat uh, Oblivion. Yep. And here on page, I think it's two, Ronnie just goes, you know, of all the billions upon billions upon billions of planets in the cosmos for them to look at, Ronnie just goes, eh, let's go to this one. I got a gut instinct. And mm-hmm. that's where all the action happens. That's where, you know, the, the Omega effect supposedly, you know, those people claim it is, all this stuff. It's just like, 
What? What? Yeah, it, it does. It, it is a pretty convenient little uh, storyline that, yes, now, the now vastness the, of space, this is it, where it is. First if, if the robot GL had suggested they check out the planet, I would have been more in favor. I would have been more in line with that. And I can't say much more other than it makes more sense after you read Circle of Fire number two. Why, if the robot had gone, I have a hunch, let's go there. I'd have been like, okay, that, that actually works. Okay. Um, but in this case, it really doesn't. I have to say that there are things I do like about the comic. Like, the art's serviceable. Uh, it's fine. Ron Randall was kind of known for doing Justice League International at this point. Not, yes. like, the fun Justice League International, but the no, one that yeah. was just, the one that was Justice League Europe and became Justice League International. Mm-hmm. And not my favorite drawn book, but he does a better job here, I would say. I do really like the Manhunter. I think his design's really cool because it's very weird and funky. Not the kind of robot we would ever yeah, imagine it, in a movie. It's far different from the typical Manhunter robots that look sort of, you know, that that have the very sort of stereotypical, almost. They've got the head like Maximilian, kind of from the black hole, and the very Hulk-like body or the very strong arm body. So it's it's a neat sort of design. It doesn't look exactly like your typical Manhunter. So uh, uh, the design of the Green Lantern is kind of cool. Also, I don't know. Well, I got to say something before you before you leave the Green Lantern design. Yes. One of the things I really liked about the aspect of it is that when he's in space, he's really shiny. It yes. reflects the stars, and that looks totally badass. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things I commented on, or I was going to come on on, on like page Oops. two. Uh, you get that image of them flying through space, and this, you've got this sort of reflective thing on this on the left side of him as the stars and everything sign. And you know, the way it's drawn, it could you uh, people could easily mistake it for him being you know like transparent. But no, once you look at it, it's really good design that you know you can see the reflection of you know what's going on. And so I like that. Mm-hmm. Plus, I was also going, and this is just me being sort of geeky. The uh, the the name of the robot is GL seven one seven seven six, which I guess if you do the leet speak, which is the substituting numbers for letters and everything, I guess that's kind of a palindrome because you've got GL seven one seven seven six. If you put that backwards. It would be in substitute the six for G and mm-hmm. the sevens for L. It's kind of a palindrome. So that's that's me just being dirty oh. there. I, and I don't know. Really if that's, cool. I don't know if that's particularly chosen because of that. Whether I'm Brian sure K. Bond did, be. but I I thought that was kind of. And I don't know how how stereotypical that quote unquote leet speak was at this point in time. I don't know whether the the internet was you know. Uh, founded by these geeks who like to shorten things with numbers and stuff. The word crimes. So, horrible. Word crimes? <laughs> have you not heard the new Weird Al Yankovic songs yet? I have not. No. Oh, you need to hear. Word crimes is this, is, the, is Weird Al's um, parody song for, oh, what's his name? Uh, oh, Rodham. I wish they'd loaded that on my wife's iPad. Yeah, oh, if they'd only done that instead of YouTube, though. But uh, it's the parody song of Robin Thicke's uh, Blurred Lines, mm. and it is hilarious. It's, okay. it's, it's genius. If you if you can, go seek it out. I'll probably underscore you know this part of the thing with that song, because I just love that song. Awesome. Um, uh, I, do, I do have some comments about the, uh, the art looking good, uh, particularly on 
page eight. You know, E.T.'s mom is pretty hot. I've got to say that. <laughs> there's definitely some cheesecake stuff going on here. Yeah, with that. there's, you know, that that panel where she's standing there. I, I, you know, I can see the uh, boobs and butts shot there. I mean, oh, she's yeah. not quite as bad as Wonder Woman in that. But, yeah, there's some there's two definite circles that are drawing your eye to the panel there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the only other, you know, I had a couple other comments. The The fan... Yeah. Um, is that typical for Ronnie? I mean, couldn't he absorb the flames or something? That's probably the best part of the issue. Um, that's very typical for Ronnie. Ron, one of the things I always liked about Ronnie was Ronnie loves being Firestorm. Mm-hmm. He loves being a superhero. And so everything he does with his powers, because his primary power is transmutation. Yes. You know, changing one thing to another. Um, in this case, usually just element to element, but when he's, you know, in the old days, he would create whatever he wanted, objects to objects, Ronnie would tend to use his powers in big, grandiose ways. If somebody was falling from a building and they're about to hit the ground, instead of creating just like, you know, a trampoline for them to land on, he'd create a giant rubber duck <laughs> or a giant bowl of ice cream. It was always bigger than life. It was always ridiculous and it was always fun. So when this is coming at Ronnie and he decides the way to, you know, to blast it back at them is a giant, you know, oscillating 1940s fan, that's <laughs> awesome. I love it. It's like, hell yes, he would. Okay, because, you know, for, you know, for me, knowing as little as I do about Firestorm, I would think that he would use some of his energy powers or something to sort of absorb it or something like that. But now that you mentioned that he's this kind of guy who enjoys using his powers to transform things, him making a giant oscillating fan is just is just kind of fun. So I'll give you that. Love it. When I swear to God, on the panel where Professor Stein is the fire elemental... Yeah. Shows himself off. When I first looked at that until, until I saw Ronnie, you know, with a little cat, with a little word balloon of professor, I thought that that was effigy. And it's probably because, you know, I've been so engaged in the Green Lantern comics and effigy was a part of that. The design's pretty much the same thing. The red bodysuit, the flaming hair, the white boots. It's, it's all kind of there. I mean, there's no effigy core symbol on there, but. Just the look there, and the, the, of course the white, chalk white, almost Joker face, kind yeah. of made me think of Effigy. So when I found out that this is – now, is this, this the design that Professor Stein had when he was supposed to be the uh, the uh, fire god or the uh, fire elemental? Yes. When it, when the fire elemental was around starting in 89, this was the design. Um, I can't remember whether it was Tom Grinberg or Tom Mantrick that actually created the design. But yeah, right out of the gate, even when Professor Stein wasn't part of the fire elemental – body at first um this was the look okay so do you think that that uh daryl banks might have swiped a bit of that when he was doing uh effigy for the green Lantern? No, i think there's just only so many ways to do a fire dude okay <laughs> that's what it kind of boils down to i, I you know i also you, have you to... either go human torch style where there's like no no real discernible features or you give it features and they end up looking similar okay well that makes sense i will say also on this page that uh Professor Stein has uh, basically flaming wolverine hair, so there you go with that. It's a huge mane. It's an absolutely massive mane of hair, and it looks gorgeous normally. I'm going to yeah. have to send you some cool pictures of the, of the elemental fire. It looks so badass. I would be more than that. I mean, the art is in, it's not bad here, but you know, I'm certain if you've seen other stuff, uh, it's got to be better. I, I, I trust yes. your... Tom Mandrake rocks. Well, yes. Time. That is Tom Mendrick. See, and I don't know all that much about Ron Randall. I mean, I think he's serviceable, but maybe, you know, compared to Tom Mandrake, there's got to be a significant amount of difference. Yeah, really, I don't have any specific 
notes after this. Uh, you know, a couple other things like the robot is very. They they try to sh- start off the robot as being sort of like a Spock like character with like no emotions, you know, sort of thing, and then they they kind of go through the gambit of just of how the robot acts, but it's not terribly consistent throughout the the issue. So that makes it a little hard for me too. Yeah, well, I'm certain this will all sort of play out in the second Circle of Fire story where we'll get more of an idea of what's going on. Like I've said, I haven't read it yet. I've kind of, you know, seen things on the Internet about what it's supposed to be, but I don't specifically I don't know the specifics about it yet. So I'm kind of waiting for that. And I know you're just champing at the bit to, to talk to me about that, but I'm sorry I'm having to ask you to hold off. Yeah, I've got I've got some strong feelings on this entire storyline okay. of Circle of Fire and the end results and what it meant for Kyle and yeah, I got I got stuff to say. So, <laughs> I don't want to spoil the story for you though. Okay, no problem. Oh, and you know, I just a little tangent, you just sent me a little link about the uh an image from Firestorm and yes, that is significantly better artwork than what we're getting here. I yeah. like the logo too. That's a kind of cool logo. Yeah, it looks like it's cinders, like it's burning. Mm-hmm. The, the elemental period only lasted 15 issues of Firestorm, but it was so good. Uh, one little comment here about the sort of inconsistency about the robot. I know one of Ronnie's powers was that he couldn't affect organic things. He could only affect inorganic things. That's why he's having to know the chemical composition and stuff. Mm-hmm. When he tries to blast the Green Lantern robot, he makes this comment that the robot is, you know, he can't affect it. And he wonders if the robot is organic, which doesn't make sense because, well, it's a robot. So I guess that's more seeding of the whole mystery of what's going on in the Circle of Fire storyline. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there you go. And again, another, <laughs> another mystery that I'll have to figure out here in a couple of weeks. Um, I love the cover. The cover is by Carrie Nord. Mm-hmm. Carrie Nord is awesome. Carrie Nord did a run on Daredevil that is one of my favorite runs oh, of Daredevil really? ever with, with Carl Kiesel. And um, this cover just looks awesome. I love Firestorm's hair. Uh, everything about the cover is just really sharp. Yeah. The, his face doesn't look as defined, unfortunately, for me. He looks, you know, I think it looks, I think it's good, but I think the shading on it, for me, looks a little off. But everything else, you know, the the Green Lantern robot, the weird sort of lantern symbol in the back, and even the sort of, you know, more metallic-looking Green Lantern logo up there, I think is kind of cool yep. as well. But yeah, other than that, uh, I'm sorry that you didn't enjoy this issue <laughs> as much as I did. Well, I enjoyed the the front end. I enjoyed the the Green Lantern issue much more. So that was I still got to do something fun. So that's okay. okay. Well, I appreciate you being on here, Shag. It's uh, like I said, we get to talk every once in a while when we do the the Who True Freaks thing, and it's great, you know, having you come on here, especially. When I get to talk to people who do specific, who have specific fandoms of specific characters, I always love getting them on. You know, I, it was a big thrill of mine to have, uh, your co-host Rob Kelly on, even if it was for that short time doing that little Aquaman story a while back. Mm-hmm. But it's always great having, getting a chance to talk to you, Shaq. Well, I appreciate it. And thank you for mentioning the podcast. I'll do my pimpage now. Yeah, uh, let's go ahead and do that. It's the Fire and Water podcast. You can find it on iTunes uh, and Stitcher. You can also find it on our blogs, firestormfan.com and aquamanshrine.net. It is uh, a bizarre niche kind of idea for a podcast. It is a podcast about Firestorm, the nuclear man, and Aquaman. Why we decided at some point three years ago that it was a good idea to put those two characters together, I don't know. But it's just worked. We've had a blast doing the show. 
Um, the network itself has grown. We actually have other shows in the same feed. We've got a Power Records show. If you remember those old Power Records from the 70s, we've got a Hero Points podcast, which focuses on superhero role-playing games or DC superhero role-playing games. We've got uh, Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, where we cover the Who's Who comic from the 80s, issue by issue, page by page, which has actually proven to be one of our most popular programs we produce. And... um we're having an absolute blast with it. You know, we, we really love doing the Firewater podcast. And you know what? If you if you have even a passing interest in Firestorm or Aquaman, please feel free to swing by and give it a listen and let us know what you think. You know, to be, to be completely honest, it's not that I dislike the characters, but I just didn't have any knowledge of the character, any real passion for the characters like you did. Listening to the Fire and Water podcast, I now have a passion for it. And I'm picking up issues of Aquaman. Because of that, and also because I like the Paul Pelletier art. But yeah, it's it's inc- it's been really well written, and listening to you guys talk about this stuff is just it's an amazing show. If you guys aren't listening to Fire and Water podcast, what is your problem? <laughs> By the way, something else we didn't talk about, and maybe you talked about this in part one. I don't know, but um, this whole Circle of Fire thing—it was a fifth week event. Oh yeah. And I don't know, do the people at home even know what that is nowadays? I don't even know. You know, the thing is, I do another show that's about essentially a fifth week event. And I don't know if people uh, would actually know. Do you want to go ahead and sort of give them an idea of what that would be? Sure. Uh, you know, you get four weeks in a month, right? But every once in a while, because of the way the calendar falls, there is a fifth week in certain months. Well, that's of no real consequence to anybody. Well, it turns out it is in the publishing business. Because in the publishing business, you only want to publish once a month. You don't want to publish every four weeks. So as it would turn out, there were certain weeks of the, when, when there'd be a fifth week, there'd be almost no comics that week. So just because of the way the calendar fell, there really was very, very few comics being released. And the comic book shops, are, are small businesses. They're usually living week to week, literally, you know, paying their bills. And if there's no revenue that week, per se, from the new comic sales, they're going to really struggle. So, you know, DC, and I assume Marvel did something similar, I don't remember, looked at it and said, you know what, A, there, there's an opportunity here to make some money, because there's a week where there's nearly not many comics, new comics that are out there. And B, we sort of owe it to the comic shop owners to try and keep them afloat. You know, because we don't, besides the fact that they've supported us, we don't want them to close because then we can't distribute our product. So they came up with this idea of fifth week events where they would do, release a series of comics, all like one story, if you will, and it would all take, all be released the same week. In this case, Circle of Fire, I guess what we got was probably part one, one week, and then maybe these five issues the next, you know, during the fifth week, and then part two a following week or something maybe? Yeah, I think that's the way it was released. And, and Tangent, as you were talking about, all your Tangent, all nine of the Tangent issues, boom, dropped on the same day in the fifth week. Mm-hmm. So, and um, it was just a, a an interesting time. I don't know that really there's a fifth week initiative anymore. I think they've sort of figured out a way to stagger the books so they just kind of flow a little more naturally nowadays. Uh, I don't know that for sure, but mm-hmm. that's my belief. And it, pro- it probably could be that, you know... It does. It does unfortunately seem that a lot of times now keeping a specific regular monthly schedule isn't necessarily something that editors or whatever have their artists or writers do. A lot of times you'll have delays of months or even multiple months on certain books. So, you know, not having a consistent release schedule is kind of one of those things that just happens. Either that, or you get people, you get certain artists who you know, want to come in and draw. Uh, a run have to be 
you know, helped out by other artists and such. So maybe that's another another part of it as well. Yep. I wonder. I think some of the other fifth week didn't win like uh, New Year's Evil. Mm-hmm. I know. I I don't know whether I know Day of Judgment was one of them. I think. I don't know if the final night storyline was. I'm trying to think of any Superman events. I just got a bunch. Uh, DC had uh, New Year's Evil in 1997. Okay. Girl Frenzy. I remember that. The 1998. That was the Girl Frenzy, by the way. Sort of interesting. The trade dress to Girl Frenzy isn't that dissimilar from the trade dress to Tangent. Both had very creative, sort of cutting edge trade dresses. But Hmm. um, The Kingdom, which was a sequel to Kingdom Come. Yes. Amalgam. Uh, comics, Tangent, heard of those. Mm-hmm. Sins of Youth, Green Lantern, Circle of Fire, Justice Society Returns, Power Surge. I don't even know what Power Surge was. Mm-hmm. And then there was, oh gosh, I forgot, Justice League of, with a question mark, which was, it was all JLA, but it was like Justice League of Aliens, Justice League of Amazons, etc., etc. And then there was a Vertigo one called V2K, which I wasn't familiar with either. Hmm. I gotta figure out what Power Surge is, hold on. Oh, it's Power Company! Uh, okay, well there you go. So, but Shag, it is always awesome to talk to you. And I again, I've got to tell. <laughs> That's no, Sean's way of saying, "Shut up, Shag." Let's end the episode. <laughs> I'm saying, I'm saying, I've got to get some rest. And, you know, I've got to get the kids up in the morning. And ah, uh, me but too. It, it's it's always great talking to you. And we're gonna obviously we're gonna do another Who True Freaks pretty soon. Pretty soon, so we'll get you in on that. Awesome. Looking forward to it, buddy. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I know the honor was all yours, but. Um, <laughs> I, I'm so excited. Any chance I get to talk about Kyle, which is almost never. So very exciting for me. Well, I'm, I'm glad I got to give you this opportunity to talk about it. It's really fun having you on. Well, thanks, everyone, for downloading the show and listening. And make sure to come back next time for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Two True Freaks family podcast show thing. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsacore contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was A Ring of Fire, not the Johnny Cash one, 
but the Social Distortion one, off the album of the same name, Social Distortion. Once again, if you like this song, and why wouldn't you? It's it's a Johnny Cash classic, done really well by a wonderful sort of 90s alt-punk rock band. And if you'd like to get this song, well, the best place you could go to get it would be Amazon.com. Not only is Amazon.com one of the cheapest places to find music, DVDs, entertainment of all sorts, but it's also a place where, if you use a link at 2TrueFreaks.com, you can help out the show. How could you do that? Well, simply go by the website 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon banner at the upper left-hand corner of the page. Whenever you use that link at 2TrueFreaks.com and you make a purchase from Amazon.com, a small amount of your purchase price goes right back to the website. It doesn't cost you anything, so you don't get anything other than whatever music, entertainment, DVD, electronic that you want from Amazon, but 2 True Freaks is fortunate enough to get a little kickback from Amazon.com for advertising on their site. So anytime that you feel like buying something from Amazon.com, whether it be awesome music by Social Distortion or Johnny Cash, because Johnny Cash was the first guy who did this, Make sure you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. So far, I'm pretty impressed. I, I just got in contact with uh, Earth 2 Chris, Chris Franklin, who does yeah. the uh, the Power Records show with Rob. Yeah. And uh, I've been listening to the, the Supermates podcast, and I really enjoy it. And, you know, we've been having back-and-forth conversation. He's been doing the uh, House of Franklinstein thing, the horror comics, and uh, talking about horror movies over at his uh, podcast recently. And that, he, he actually said that he uh, tuned what? in and listened to – huh? What's he got now? The whole what is it? He he's doing a, a series on the Supermates podcast called the House of Frankenstein, <laughs> where okay. he's doing where he's covering like uh, classic horror movies. He did his the first oh, episode he did was uh, Bride of Frankenstein. He talked about that and uh, talked about oh I can't remember what Superman issue it was, but it was one I was like a Bronze Age issue, and it was Superman going up against Dracula the actual Dracula and the Frankenstein monster. <laughs> and there was a part in there where Superman was able to knock Dracula out by taking a balloon that was filled with hydrogen, like a kid's balloon filled with hydrogen because, you know, comics, superheating it with his heat vision and compressing it with his super strength to form it into a miniature sun, which... Damage Dracula. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that was the reaction that Chris and Cindy both had. That was that was completely surprising. I was like, eh, that's that's the kind of thing that I like to hear from because you can always ask, you know, oh yeah, you know, you know, what what was it what was it like, Mark Millar writing the ultimates? Oh, oh yeah, sure. Exactly. But well, no one wants I... to talk to Mark Millar. So son of a bitch. There's a fucking Ultraverse podcast network. <laughs> like I've already got another guy who wants to do another show in the network. Oh, he wants sweet to do a show Jesus. just on Nightman. I mean, like they're not even that good at comics, but I just love them. It's all oh, your fault. That's awesome. I'm sorry. You and Michael's fault. <laughs>